Thanks, Pete. And uh, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. As we keep going in Luke's Gospel, meeting Jesus and seeing what it looks like for Jesus to bring peace on earth, that's how we've heard his salvation described early on in Luke's Gospel. And we see that worked out as people are confronted with Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do. And my prayer is that we would be confronted this morning by the real Jesus and continue to see what it means for him to bring peace on earth, the great salvation that we desperately need and that God so graciously provides. So let me pray for us and uh, then we'll jump in to this next little bit of Luke. Our Father, we thank you so much for the real Jesus of history whom we meet here in Luke's Gospel. And so we pray that you would help us once again this morning to see him clearly, uh, that we might see the wonderful blessing of knowing him and have realistic expectations for what lives of Christian discipleship will look like. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, expectations are important and if you were here with us last week, you'd know that Jesus comes to bring newness of life, the old ways of religion, the old patterns of relating to God, uh, the old way of relating within that religious system or a, a performance treadmill have been done away and the blessings of the new creation that Jesus comes to begin have already begun But Jesus wants you to be crystal clear about what a life of Christian discipleship is actually going to look like. Because you don't want to have gone home last week and think, because Jesus has brought newness of life, therefore it's all going to be beer and Skittles. It's all going to be rainbows and lollipops. It's all going to be unicorns and tandem bikes. It's not. That's not the reality of life in this world. Jesus has come to undo the ravaging effects of sin on human life and on his world. But the expectation is, as we experience the wonderful blessings of the the new kingdom, we don't experience those blessings in all its fullness until Jesus returns. But this newness of life is real, it's new, it's good, and Jesus talks about it in these ways Uh, In this section, there's three points you'll be happy to know. Uh, There are new foundations in verses 12 to 16. There are new values in verses 20 to 26. And a new lifestyle in verses 27 to 36. And I think lifestyle is probably the weakest word I could think of to describe what Jesus describes in verses 27 to 36. We'll get there in a little bit, but let's look at this new foundation that Jesus lays in verses 12 to 16 where he appoints the 12 apostles. And once again, as we've been saying each and every week, if you're a first century Jewish reader of Luke's Gospel, you just cannot escape the Old Testament references, not even the allusions, but the reenactments that happen in Jesus' life and ministry that self-consciously point to what God did in the Old Testament and self-consciously point to how Jesus um, brings, brings that to its completion and its fullness in beginning the life of his kingdom. And so as Jesus comes to appoint the 12 apostles, we see him up on a mountainside praying to God, spending time relating to his heavenly Father. Uh, Jesus is walking in the footsteps of Moses before he would come 
uh, to, to lead God's people and bring the 12 tribes into the promised land. So Jesus, having spent a night on the mountain praying to God, comes down and calls his disciples to himself. And notice that Jesus appointing the apostles, whom aren't just regular disciples, but Jesus' particular chosen representatives, those who would be the foundation for his new people, his new family, Jesus chooses them, they don't appoint themselves. Jesus prayerfully appoints these men to be the foundation of his new people. And so the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2 that you are no longer aliens and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus is choosing these apostles who would be the ones who would lay down his teaching that would be the foundation for this new people of God. And so having appointed these apostles to be the new foundation who would record Jesus' teaching, who would start his new church, the new family of God, Jesus then goes on to teach, to give them that apostolic gospel and what it looks like to be Christian disciples. Uh, When Jesus talks about Christian discipleship, the word disciple means to be a learner, there's different kinds of learners, aren't there? Uh, if you were anything like me, and I'm hesitant to say this with my two sons in the room, but when I was at school, I would just learn what I needed to to pass exams. Right? Be a student of a subject so that you could get through. And is that the idea that Jesus has when he talks about Christian discipleship, that we're just to be learners of a subject, students who learn enough to get through? What do I need to do to pass the final exam of Judgment Day? And I'll do the bare minimum and then get on with enjoying my life or the other moments of the week. Now, that's not what it looks like to be a Christian disciple. A disciple is different to a student because a disciple follows a teacher, walking in their footsteps, emulating their life, trusting their words and building their life upon it. And so if you want to be a Christian disciple, it's not just about learning Jesus as a subject, but following him, following him as a disciple, walking in his ways and trusting in his promises. And if that's going to be the case, Jesus says, then you're going to have a whole new set of values. Have a look with me at verse 17. Jesus went down with his disciples and apostles and he stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Once again... Right? We see Jesus upturning the ravaging effects of sin in this world. That's why he's come, to restore life. And he would do that primarily in his death on the cross as he opens for us the gate of glory, as he deals with sin and judgment and death and gives us life and forgiveness and hope. 
And as Jesus does that, he looks at his disciples and he's specifically addressing those who have trusted and who have followed him. And here's the thing. Jesus totally upturns what yours and mine and their views of the blessed life in this world actually looks like. That the values of Jesus' kingdom are upside-down values. As one writer has said, he exalts what the world despises and he rejects what the world admires. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that's how their ancestors treated the prophets. Make no mistake, Jesus promises you that you are blessed now if you are the possessor of the kingdom of God and inheritor with him of all things, a child of his heavenly father because of his grace and his kindness. Blessed are you now Yours is the kingdom of God now. But the reward is yet to come. There is great joy, Jesus says, in following him. You will be unbelievably happy and never free from trouble. You will be unbelievably happy and never free from trouble. And what you're longing for is for the kingdom of God in all its fullness. You're longing for that day when every tear will be wiped away. Uh, I took uh, Mrs Lee's funeral on Thursday and what a wonderful gift it is to have the Anglican prayer book that takes you to those passages of hope thinking about the fact that walking through the midst of grief and suffering and loss, now, Jesus doesn't promise to remove you from that. Jesus doesn't promise that you won't experience that. He promises to be with you in that and he promises you that there is a day coming when he will wipe every tear from your eye. And so great is that hope and so sure is that reward is that even in circumstances of poverty and hunger and weeping and persecution, the disciple of Jesus with their eyes fixed on him can say, blessed is me because mine is the kingdom. Even in those circumstances of need and hunger, and weeping. These circumstances that Jesus described are pictures of people who in this life recognise all too acutely that they don't possess in themselves the resources that they need 
to take hold of the kingdom of God, to take hold of forgiveness and eternal life. That they don't in themselves possess what they need in order to fix their broken relationships and fix our broken world. But blessed are they because they can take hold of those resources, they can take hold of that salvation, they can take hold of that secure hope in Jesus. I think of the lady who became a Christian who had been suffering from chronic depression for many, many years and with the joy of becoming a Christian and knowing Jesus, her minister said to her, you know, this might not mean that your depression goes away. And she says, oh, I know that but I'll only have to put up with it for another 50 years at best. And that's not a flippant dismissal of her mental illness. That is a keen sensitivity to the limitations of suffering in this world. In comparison to what Jesus is doing in preparing a place for people like her, the home of righteousness, where he leads you to springs of living water and wipes every tear from your eye. That's lasting joy. That's real blessedness. Hers is the kingdom. Jesus promises to his disciples that in following him, they will be absurdly happy and never out of trouble. He compares this picture of Christian discipleship, those who are truly blessed, to those who should be pitied above all else. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who think that your wealth and your comfort and your possessions are the only hope that you need. Because the satisfaction that you experience from your wealth and your comfort and your possessions, that fleeting, dissatisfied comfort is the only comfort that you will have. Talking to a person recently who said to me, I have received everything that I have ever wanted. And I'm still dissatisfied. And one of the reasons to pity those who are self-sufficiently wealthy and comfortable is that they don't think they are in need of anything, especially the forgiveness and love and mercy of the Lord Jesus. Do you pity those people? Is your heart moved towards those people who think they're reliant on their own riches and their own comfort, who can't see beyond the limitations of their own life, who laugh now and who will mourn and weep when Jesus says, away from me, you evildoer.
comfort, Leon Morris writes, is not to be mistaken for blessedness. Comfort is not to be mistaken for blessedness. Woe to you who have everything that you need and want for nothing. It's that picture of the Pharisees from last week, isn't it? Holding on to the old wine of their religion, of their self-righteousness, of their hypocrisy, and saying, this is enough. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see that comfort is not to be mistaken for blessedness. Jesus lays the new foundation of his apostles and the new values of what is truly blessed in his kingdom and then he lays out a new lifestyle that should make you squirm as you read it. That love and mercy are at the core of what it means to follow Jesus and to belong to his kingdom because love and mercy are at the core of God's DNA. You see that summary in verse 35? Love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So be merciful just as your Heavenly Father is merciful. And here's the picture Uh, As we reflected on this in my growth group on Tuesday night, (coughs) someone said it's easy to read this passage and to kind of explain away all the reasons why you can't do fully what Jesus is explaining and then you realise, wait a second, I'm the ungrateful and the wicked one that God has shown mercy to. That he in his grace comes in love for his enemies, those who have rejected him and say, we don't want you in our lives, thank you very much. He is the one who comes and says, but I am merciful and kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And if we're to be disciples and if we have any inheritance in the kingdom of God, it's only because he's merciful, it's only because of his grace. And we are absolutely the ungrateful and the wicked ones that he's been merciful to. And so Jesus' big point is that if you're one of his disciples, then by definition you are someone who has recognised your need, humbled yourself before him and trusted in his mercy and forgiveness. And so if you have received his mercy and his kindness, his grace and his love, if you've received it, then how in turn will you not give it? To steal a little bit of the thunder of next week, when he talks about the blessings of God, have a look at verse 38. Right? Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. Right? That's that picture of coming to the market and you've got your, your, your bag and what do you want from the person at the market? When you give them money for a certain amount of grain, what do you want them to do? You want them to press down in your bag so that you can fit more in. You know that picture when you go to, to Silver's or Frango's to get chips and they fill the chip bag 
and then they put the chip bag in a plastic bag and they chuck another scoop of chips in. That's what you want, isn't it? You're longing for the extra scoop of chips. You know the bag's already full, but inside the plastic, there's a little bit more capacity. Tip some more in, right? And that's the measure that God uses. He stuffs down his grace deep inside you and then he puts more in and then he shakes you so that you have more space for more grace and more mercy until you're overflowing. And don't we want to be a people who are so full of God's grace, who have received his mercy and are so captivated by a merciful and loving and gracious Heavenly Father that we can't help but overflow. To overflow in love and mercy and kindness, even, verse 27, to your enemies. To do good to those who hate you and to pray for those who mistreat you. Isn't that revolutionary? Where all too often the best I can muster is to be a little bit passive-aggressive in ignoring the person that I don't want to talk to, to maybe smile with my eyebrows raised at the person that I don't want to talk to, And maybe not say anything unkind. Haven't I done well at that point? And Jesus says, no. That instead of having a passive aggressive eyebrow raised at the person with your back to, you need to turn towards them. And you need to pray for them. And you need to not just not harm them. but actively do good for them. Which is why this is a picture of not having the resources in our own strength to to live out, to, to receive salvation and to live it out. We need Jesus' supernatural impact in our hearts and minds by his grace that we might overflow and love like he loves and bless like he blesses and do good to those who hate us. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked and where bigger a place do you see it when he prays from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus dies for his enemies, which is you and me. And so the person who slights you, he says, you need to turn towards in love. And the person who grates on you, you need to turn towards and pray for them. And the person who's taken from you and not returned something, the person that's in need, whom you don't like, you give to, And in that way, you're a child of the merciful Heavenly Father who loves you and gave himself for you. Friends, I think that this passage is one of Jesus' great evangelistic strategies for the salvation of the world. 
wanting to see his children overflowing with his grace to love like he loves, to forgive like he forgives, to be merciful like he's merciful. And I wonder if hard hearts are softened when Christians love like Jesus loves. Did you see that story? I'm sure you did. Some weeks back, when that drunk driver ploughed into four children who were walking to get ice cream. And Leela Abdullah lost three of her children and their cousin. And the world was gobsmacked when she said, I don't hate him. I think in my heart I can forgive him. That's who we are. And what did she talk about when she's thinking in her heart? You know, like you can't comprehend what she's going through and even she herself is a little bit cautious. I think I can forgive him. And the only reason that she can say that, she says, is because she keeps thinking about the cross of Good Friday with Jesus' arms open wide to the world with the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. That when you look at him and you experience his love and his mercy and that costly forgiveness, even in the midst of that unspeakable tragedy, she can say, I think because of Jesus and his cross, I think I can forgive him. That's amazing. That's incredible. And that's Christian discipleship. Not because of resources that we possess, but because our Father in heaven is merciful to the ungrateful and wicked like you and like me. Weakness in the face of hostility, vulnerability in the face of opposition, generosity in the face of need and a willingness to sit loose to the things of this world. That's the picture that Jesus gives us of Christian discipleship and the expectation, not of its ease, but of its difficulty and the unspeakable, absurd happiness of knowing our merciful and kind Heavenly Father and longing to be a people who overflow in kind. Let's pray together. Our Father, make us these people, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.